Amen. Remain standing for the reading of God's Word again from Matthew chapter 11. As we're going to focus in part on verses 25 through 30, I want to back back up and capture the, the balance of where we uh, was, were reading last Lord's Day and segue right into it because it's all kind of part of the same theme. Well, you changed your place. And weren't you back there? Welcome to the front row. This is an exciting place to be as you're enveloped in the praises of God's people. Hear the word of God from Matthew 11. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat cloth in ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for, it so, for, it so, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son reveal, wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Our gracious Father, we confess that we need your Spirit now to open up the word of life to us. And Father, we look to you to be active in each of the hearing hearts this day, revealing your truth to us and making even those hearts that are closed to be open to your activity, that they might hear the word and be doers of the gospel. Grant, O Lord, I pray that the Spirit would make application to each one of our lives specifically. And so we commit this time to your glory and to your honor, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a tremendous passage that is before us. As we consider hearing Jesus' response of why people do not come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's addressing those responses, and it will help us even today as we consider this very passage in an applicable way to us. I see people that have come in this morning um, with burdens on their shoulders, whose yokes are very heavy. And the weight of life is weighing them down. 
And I trust that the message will be very relevant and the Spirit will work powerfully. Jesus is responding in this passage to those who are unbelieving. And unbelief is inexcusable. In fact, it is very senseless and illogical not to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the question of why people would not believe is the one that Scripture speaks much about and one that the Scripture here is specifically addressing. And in the present passage, our Lord takes us back to those ancient Phoenician cities. These were not Israelite cities. These were foreigners and pagans. And He pronounced judgment on them, even though they did have light. And they did not have the light of Israel, but they had light. They were Baal worshippers in spite of the light that they had, and they were inexcusable, and they perished, and they were inexcusable for God because of the light that God had given them, and the knowledge that He had made known to them. And it leaves them not only without excuse, but it leaves them accountable before God for their sins and their rejection of Him. And then, of course, there is the matter of the final consequence in all of this, and that is eternal judgment that is absolutely final. So why do people take an illogical and senseless position that will leave them in an eternal and final judgment? And that's what we're grappling with here from the Scriptures. Last Lord's Day, we looked at one aspect of why people reject God and Christ, and that was really quite a human factor, and that is one of the very factors. The problem has to do with the will of man, his very volition, where the decisions of life are made. It's the place that is based upon his desires, and he chooses based upon his appetites and what he likes, his lusts. There are very different kinds of lusts. There are sensual lusts. There's also material lust, that when you love things more than you love God. There's relational lust that he's already spoken about when you love father or mother or spouse or, or somebody else more than you love God. There are intellectual lusts, and that's when people insist on having their minds satisfied at every point. These are the kinds of things that the Scripture indicates are reasons why people will not choose Christ and will remain unbelieving. And it all boils down to their passions and their appetites, and they will rather choose, because of these things, other things over God. We are people with fierce desire and voracious and tenacious lusts and appetites. And the Lord demanded of people, as He still does now, that they change the entire way that they look at things. And they change their minds. That's a call to repentance. That we alter our view 
And we need to prepare to allow Him to govern our lives in every portion and every aspect of it. His way is right. It's the right way. And His will must prevail in our lives over that fierce willfulness to the extent that we can no longer speak like we want or desire what we want or wish what we want or behave like we want. Yes. And if we will not do this, we will be punished. It will be eternal. And we will be deserving of that punishment. But our Lord was not merely demanding of us. He came to save us from ourselves. And from this heart that is so bent on selfishness. And if we do not believe that and yield our lives to that, we will go to hell for all of eternity and that will be fixed and final and just. And there's nothing more catastrophic than to think or to to actually lose your soul in hell for all of eternity with no recourse at all. There's nothing more catastrophic than that. In fact, that's where I don't think there's even a human thought that's more terrifying than the thought of that. And part of that explanation is on the human side of things. There's just a willfulness for this fierce appetite and desire. That's one half of it. That's one side of it, I should say. There's another side of it. And that's the divine factor. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we consider this divine factor, the the other part of the other side of that. I want to consider from the scriptures. That God is at work in belief and unbelief. And there are applications for us today, even as believers, as we sit under the press of this weighty truth. And the passage begins with our Lord praying to the Father. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. Now, anytime you hear and are part of an audience that God has chosen to be a part of a, of a hearing ear, to hear a, a conversation between the Father and the Son, We must pay very close and reverent attention. This is, this is holy, holy ground in this conversation. This is the, the holy of holies when you are privy to hear the persons of the Godhead exchange familial conversation and praise and love and thanksgiving, and adoration. And here we hear the Son praising the Father. The word here is a a grateful acknowledgement to God. I praise you, Father. 
And what we hear is the apparent activity of the Father when people hear the Word, like you are right now. Hearing the Word expounded and preached and taught. And when people hear the Word, there's activity of the Father that is going on right now. The Father is active when people hear the Word of God in the most determinative way. He says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. When the Word of God is being preached or taught or spoken or read, what is the Father doing? And for some, He is concealing. For others, He is revealing. Those implications are very great, so let's reflect on each of those for a moment. What are the implications when God is revealing His Word? This is the revealing activity when the Word of God is is expounded. And apart from that activity, people will not listen. They will not hear the Word of God, much less even respond to it. The Father does some kind of work that is an opening up for people to hear and see and understand and comprehend and say yes to that. We have many examples throughout all of Scripture that this is so. In fact, I'll give you four or five. Over a couple of pages over from here, we'll get to it uh, at some point, Lord willing. But in Matthew 13, he is speaking to them in parables. And this is the wonderful chapter on the kingdom parables. And the disciples came and asked Jesus, why do you speak to us in parables? And he answered and says, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. People didn't get them. That was its purpose. The revelation of God could only be understood to those or by those to whom it had been given. We find later in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In fact, I didn't even reveal this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, he has revealed that to you, Peter. In John 6, we see clearly that God the Father must be active in revealing Christ to people in order for them to come, in order for them to hear, for them to understand. And what Jesus is doing in this chapter is he is explaining why people are not coming to him. And he is doing so, not merely explaining it to us believers, why people don't come to him, but he is doing it to people who are rejecting him. In verse 44, he says, do not murmur among yourselves. He's speaking to those who are murmuring because of the teaching he just gave, who are chafing in their hearts, who are not hearing it, who are not receiving it. And he says, do not murmur among yourselves. No man can come unto me unless my Father who sent me draws him. The very next verse in 45 
He quotes from Isaiah 54, which is a chapter that goes right after Isaiah. Very good. Very good. And you know what Isaiah 53 is all about. And that quote from Isaiah 54, he says, And your children shall be taught by the Lord. And we might not know what that meant, except anyone who does come to Jesus in faith has been personally instructed by God the Father. And those who are instructed by God the Father, they do come. And that's what verse 37 says in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is the very instruction that cures the individual. On his resurrection day, when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they at first thought they had seen a ghost. He says, give me food to eat. And he, he ate with them. And Jesus spoke to them. And he gave evidence of all that he was. And then in Luke's gospel, in the 24th chapter, he says, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. They could not, apart from his activity. Folks, we have to be just really settled with that fact. Are you settled with the fact that the bare exposition of the Scriptures alone, even by the Son of God Himself, is not sufficient? That there is and has to be a divine action upon the hearer in order to hear Him, in order to believe Him. And the Scripture says that he opened their eyes and he explained the Scriptures. But he had to make it comprehensible. When the Apostle Paul brought the Gospel to Macedonia, it was not his original intention to go to Macedonia. It wasn't even on his figurative radar screen, if you will, at the moment. But the Holy Spirit specifically guided him there. Paul had tried to take the Gospel to Bithynia. And it says that the Spirit of God hindered him from taking the gospel to that place at that time for the people to hear. Instead, he directed him to Macedonia, and he directs him right down to the riverside, and there was Lydia in her household. And Paul began to speak of the great oracles of God and Jesus Christ, and the Scripture says there the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord had to open her heart. We have example after example in Scripture that the Lord is active in these things. The Lord is active right now in the, the preaching of the Word to reveal. But not only does the Lord reveal the Scriptures to some, He indeed does conceal it to others. That is the very place where unbelief comes in. One of the very reasons why people do not believe. There is the human factor, but there is this divine factor. And the Father actually conceals the truth from being known to certain people according to His will. If by no other way, He simply does this by not opening their heart to it. On a number of occasions, the Scripture speaks of God hardening people's heart to their spiritual perceptions so 
that they just wouldn't get it at all. In fact, whole denominations have been started in part on their rejection on this side of things. Some people who profess the name of Christ and who make a profession in faith of Him insist on reinventing and reinterpreting the Bible on these things. On the divine factor in unbelief. As we continue here in Matthew 11 in this passage, it is important to see by what right God has to do that. To reveal to some, to conceal to others. By what right? What rights does God have? And we see that it is God's right to do whatever pleases to do. Period. Look how Jesus addresses him. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. That's who Jesus is appealing to. That's who Jesus is addressing. That is who God is. And before we reject this truth out of hand, we seriously ought to consider who this is that we are talking about. This is, this is not a man. This is not an angel. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. Our bodies? Just, they're just dirt. Dust. If it were not for God's sustaining energy right this very second, you would not be alive. You wouldn't be here. You would be in eternity. Right now, you would return to dust. But we are we are clay, and God is the potter. And He is as far distanced from us as a human potter might stand over the clay and press it with His hands as a piece of dirt comes up between the firm grasp of the potter's hands and comes into a vessel exactly as the potter intends it and how He wants it to be. If you've ever seen a potter work, he can bring up something as quick and then smoosh it right back down into a lump of clay just as quickly, and it's just nothing again. And he brings it back up, and he can stifle it. He can bring it back up and stifle it. He can bring it back up, and that's just up to him. See, God is the potter. You're a clump of dirt. And He can make you in whatever kind of vessel He wants to. If He wants, He can make you a vessel of dishonor. When Paul uses this imagery in the ninth chapter of Romans, he anticipates some human arrogance to someone who doesn't like what he's saying at this very point. And he says, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to him 
who formed it. Why have you made me this way? Do we have any right whatsoever to stand before God and say, Lord, why did you make me this way? Why is my life this way? Why are you doing this to me? You have no right to address Almighty God, Lord God of heaven and earth that way. At all. No right. And the Bible confronts us with that fact. Confronts us with the fact that God will be God. He will do whatever He pleases. And there is no one that can counsel Him otherwise. And there's no one that can stay His hand. God will do whatever He wants, including the hardening of some people's hearts so that they will never come to Christ and be saved. They will never be spared of His eternal wrath. That's God's prerogative. He can do that. It's his clay. It's his lump. Folks, we need to be satisfied with that truth. Because God will not talk to us in any other terms than we acknowledge that God is God and he can do with it what he wills. And this is what he said in his word. He said it this morning to you freshmen. And if you're not satisfied with that, you chafe in your spirit over that, God will not address you on any other terms. When someone comes to the Bible and he's full of argument, and he comes to the Bible on his own terms, and he comes with his own reasoning, with his own insistence of the way things are, with his own fierce desires upon it, Let God act toward me and respond in ways that my mind consents to and that my approval gives commendation to. The Bible will not talk to you that way. God will not address you that way. The Bible clearly informs you that you are but a man. You're dust. And you're dealing with God who is the master of the earth and heaven and all things including you. And He can do with you whatever He wills. Whatever He is pleased with. And He does not owe you anything. You are not entitled and you have no rights except eternal wrath, which is final. It's essential for us to humble ourselves under the revelation of God on this very matter. And the difficulty with all this is the fact that we're just not neutral to it. When God reveals Himself to people, He does so to a people who are not neutral. We come out of the womb corrupted against this very truth. We come into the world like microprocessor chips already pre-programmed, and we got a lot of software already on our system. And all of that has programmed us to resist any, any interference with our will. And we're a people born with such a fierce passion that we will not stand for any interference with our will.
or any of you who have parents of small, little children, you know what I'm talking about. You cross their will, and they're going to let you know. Scripture emphatically states, I am God. And I'm prepared to deal with you through my son on my terms. That's how the scripture puts it. Not on your terms. Not on your interpretation of the terms. Not on your passionate desires and all your commendations of what you want the terms to be. On God's terms. And we've seen that there is indeed a human factor to all this unbelief. And we've seen that there's a divine factor, even a divine right to all of this as he sees fit. But who is it that hides? he hides the truth from? What, what people are it? And he goes on and he speaks in this passage that he says, And behold, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, concealed it from those and you've revealed it to babes he hides the truth and the gospel and life from the wise and the intelligent and he's not talking about high iq but he's talking about people that have elevated themselves in their own vision and their own estimation of themselves where they are brainy enough to have this all figured out, at least to the extent that they reject it. And on the other hand, he reveals them to infants. Babes. Babes of their own estimation of themselves. That's who he reveals it to. And he's not talking about children specifically. He's talking about people in their spiritual nature who have humbled themselves like little children. They put themselves in a position like a young infant who when you put him in a high chair and you bring food close to his mouth with a spoon, he just opens his mouth. See how that works. You know it. And it works. And, and you know, even that is given by God. It just happens. And that's where he wants us. And that's who he opens the heart to. That's who he reveals these things to. Children. Spiritual children. Like in a high chair where God himself will come and he will fill our mouth. God oftentimes has to bring a people. He, he has to bring a people. He doesn't oftentimes. He, he, he must bring a people to the point they will view themselves in that kind of light. When they see themselves as not being able to work out all the details, to have all the answers as they become like this little child, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will enter the kingdom. You must humble yourself as a little child. And God will do that for those who He converts. But He must first, and He always does, bring us off of our high horse and right down to a humble level so that when we come to faith, a genuine true faith, 
in Jesus Christ, we come as a little child. We come humble. Asserting no right and asserting no claim. If you've ever been converted, which I trust most of you have, that's exactly what God has done in your life. He had to bring you down off your high horse. He had to bring you to the point where you're like that child in the high chair. When he raises the spoon to your mouth, you simply open your mouth so he can put the food in. Yet this may be the very explanation for even some of the problems that you face this morning. Some of the setbacks in your life or the reversals that you're facing. Perhaps you thought God was overlooking you or punishing you. But if you stop to consider for a moment, if God were punishing you this morning, you would not be sitting here right now. Perhaps all that you have experienced lately seems to be negative. And God has yet sustained your life and brought you right here where the Father is after in His Word right now. Because of what God is doing to prepare you so that you might be able to see. And if you didn't go through that, you would be going on yourself. You would be going on your confidence. You wouldn't be in the little high chair ready to open your mouth. You would be confident. You would have your way figured out. You might think to yourself, I have my investments. I have my diet, which is best for my body chemistry. I have my exercise regimen that is making me fit, and I'm very healthy. I have all kinds of insurances for my house, and it's, and it's paid for, and all I'm out of debt. I've got my children's education all figured out, and they're doing well. i got matters figured out. And on and you go, and you're thinking. In that place, in that condition, in that spirit, you are not in the condition to hear the truth, much less take it to heart. So thank God, thank God that He humbles people and He brings them back down off of their high horse. That should be a praise of ours when God disciplines those He, he loves. He lets their investments fall. He lets their children disappoint them. He lets their house fall down all around them. He breaks their health and where they can't even keep up with life anymore. And now they're flat on their backs. And finally, they're willing to acknowledge, I'm not master of my life. I can't control anything. And they turn to God in desperation. And they're right back in the high chair. And they're ready to receive the good things. And that's how God works in our lives, in all of our lives. Because of our fierce desires and appetites. But God loves us even more. And when you've strayed, He has to get you back to the place of the high chair. He prepares you once again to simply open your mouth to His raised spoon. 
Now, if I'm, I wonder if that's not some of the reasons or some of the problems that you face here and problems that I don't even know about. I wonder if that's some of the reasons why some of you are going through deep marital problems. Problems with relationship with your children or with other people in the church. The deep-seated anger and bitterness that harbored for so long up on your high horse. Troubles in your life and there's a negativity about it right now because you've been too independent, too apart from God, too trusting on yourself, too self-reliant, too proud, too fiercely desirous of other things. Presumptuous thinking that you're entitled to something better than this. And he's got to work on you, on the wheel once again. Swishing you back down, bring you back up. Bringing you to the place where you will once again look to him as the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth. So that sitting there in your figurative high chair, you can simply open your mouth now as he raises the spoon to it. And this very God, this very God of heaven, who does whatsoever he pleases, invites you in the most tender of terms. Come. Come unto me. You who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Lord God of heaven stoops down and the most tender terms appeals to you. Come. He's got the way figured out. He knows all about it. He designed you. He knows even your fallenness. And he is prepared. He has already, already made the way for your victory. He has accomplished your victory. He has it figured out. And he has accomplished these things in your behalf. All of grace. And he then approaches you. And, and he says, are you, are you heavy laden today? Are you here this morning without rest in your spirit? Then all of you who are that way. I will assure you that, that my yoke is gentle. Look at your life. Think you got it all figured out. I just had to bring you off your high horse so that you can come and know the gentle yoking of Christ. Now, there will be a yoke. You are his servant. But it's easy. Easier than everything else you got going on burden that I lay upon you, it's light. You can't bear all that. You know what? If you do that, you're going to find rest for your soul. Rest. Peace, quiet, calm in your heart. There's going to be a calm and a peace in your heart, Jesus says, when my ministry with you finishes. Won't you just trust Him and come? 
Lord praises the Father for these things, for revealing them to the wise and the knowledgeable and intelligent in their own estimation, but, uh, or concealing them to those people, but revealing it to bankers, revealing it to those who don't have it all figured out, to those who don't demand everything for their intellects and their minds to be satisfied, for those who simply come to Him. If you find that your heart is filled with feelings of rejection and hurt and distress, perhaps even a little anger over these very truths about God Himself, then you have not humbled yourself like a child because rest only comes when you collapse in the light of this truth. God in justice who owes nothing but retribution for our willfulness is the same God who so graciously and so lovingly, so kindly and so savingly invites you to come to Him. And Jesus says, Father, I praise You for this. This is Your glory. Let's let God be God. And let Him, let us come to Him on His terms. And when we do, you will find no better terms ever. Our gracious Father, work in our hearts this day. We're going to come to that invitation that you just gave as we come around this table shortly. We're going to lay all of our burdens there upon Christ. We're going to lay it all down. And we're going to pick up his yoke, which is easy. We're going to carry the burden that he gives us, which is so much lighter. And we're going to trust you for all of your goodness because you are the all-wise God, immortal, invisible. And we come to you this day asking that you would work in our hearts and bring us down off of our high horse that we might humble ourselves before the mighty throne of heaven. We give ourselves to you knowing that that powerful God lifts us up when we fall before him. And I pray for this congregation, for many who are burdened, where there are stresses in marriages and relationships, where there is envy and backbiting and wrath, where the works of the flesh are evident in their lives, where there's a negativity in their spirit and a turmoil that is anything but, but quiet and peace. Lord, I pray that your spirit right now would bring them to conviction, to repent of these sins, and to embrace the Lord Jesus and to take on His yoke fresh and new and sing with newness the song that You have placed in each of our hearts. Lord, we pray You would have Your way. We confess that we are here by Your grace and Your mercy today. So with all expectation and faith, we turn our eyes upward to see Your glory. And as we do, change us to be more like Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.